Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you for bringing us together. And as always, I pray that you would speak. Lord, your servants are listening, and I pray that we would hear your voice loudly today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we ended our last session with the time of his betrayal and death rapidly approaching, Jesus warned his disciples that the world would hate them just as it had hated him. And then Jesus went on to specifically speak about the religious leaders in Jerusalem who ignored all of the signs that they'd been given. So this is John 15 verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Now, we know that Jesus is really speaking of the religious leaders in particular here, because he says that their rejection fulfilled the prophecies written in their law. Jesus had so clearly revealed the truth of who he was, and yet they rejected him anyway. They were without excuse for their unbelief. None of what they did, though, came as a surprise to God, because he had spoken of this in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 35, about the Messiah, God had said in verse 19, they hated me without cause. And if the world hated him without cause, it will hate us without cause also. When the advocate or helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Notice all three persons of the Trinity are featured there in verse 26. Jesus is the one who sends the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit comes or goes out from the Father, and his function is to testify concerning Jesus. He bears witness about Christ, not only to those who trust Jesus, but he also testifies about Christ to others through the lives of the Christians who are indwelled by him. Jesus then goes on in chapter 16 to warn the disciples so that when the time of trouble comes, they will not stumble. All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So he 
tells them that they will be excluded from the synagogues and that they will suffer everything that would have gone along with that. Those who tried to kill them would in fact think that they were offering a service to God. You remember like Saul did before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He was very serious in his persecution of Christians, thinking that he was doing it all for God. And there are many today even who believe that they're doing the work of God by slaughtering Christians. Jesus tells his followers that he's speaking this way to prepare them for what will soon happen. And remember, this is all part of his last message to them. He not only wanted to give his closest friends last minute instructions, he wanted to encourage them and strengthen them for what lay ahead. And he also wanted to make sure that they understood the future work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus knows that sorrow had filled their hearts, but he wants them to understand that his departure is really for their good, because it's only through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that we are able to receive the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling. The Holy Spirit's work, as far as the world is concerned, is threefold. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So regarding those who live separate from Jesus, the Holy Spirit will prove that the world is very wrong about sin because sin matters very much to God. The Holy Spirit will also testify concerning Christ's righteousness and also will testify concerning judgment. But what does that really mean? Well, the Holy Spirit working through Christ's people will convict the world of their sin. As the gospel of Christ is shared, people will see their need for a savior because the Holy Spirit will convict them of their need for Jesus. You can see that in verse 9. Because of the work of the Spirit, they will realize that Jesus is the righteous one and that his death, burial, resurrection and ascension prove who he is. And you can see that in verse 10. Not only that, but as Satan, the ruler of this world, is revealed, and as people understand that in Christ he is a defeated enemy, so people will be brought to repentance and salvation. That's verse 11. And that's really the work of the Holy Spirit in getting people to make a decision for Christ or not. 
Jesus then continues in verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the father is mine. That is why I said, the spirit will receive from me and he will make known to you. So the disciples, like us, were reaching the limit of what they could understand. But Jesus went on to promise them that the Holy Spirit would also be at work in the life of the believer. As the Spirit of truth, he is the one who leads us in the right direction. He'll reveal the plans of God to us. Everything he speaks is totally consistent with the Father, according to verse 13. And not only that, the Holy Holy Spirit always glorifies Christ and what he declares to us is totally consistent with Christ and his word. So if anyone ever tells you that the Holy Spirit told them something uh, that they were to do that is contrary to the word of God, don't believe them because according to Christ, the Spirit takes that which is of Christ and makes it known to those who follow him. So it's always going to be consistent with God's word. In verse 16, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. Now, though probably they didn't understand it immediately, Jesus was referring here to the fact that he would die and be buried and then he would rise again because death had no hold on him. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. It's very obvious to us that Jesus was speaking to them of his death, burial and resurrection. But of course, at first they did not understand him and they began to discuss this among themselves. They longed to ask him about what he means, but they said nothing to him openly. Look at verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? You know, as we've said previously, Jesus knows what's in people's hearts. He knows what's troubling them and he does want them to understand, even though he begins to answer them in a way that they surely didn't expect. He says in verse 20, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So he begins by telling them that what he is about to say is the absolute truth and totally trustworthy. They will weep. 
and grieve. The world, which of course included many of those religious leaders in Jerusalem, would rejoice and they would rejoice over the very same thing that brought the disciples to grief. Now, I'm sure that the disciples didn't want to hear that they would have such distress, but Jesus tells them that their grief will turn to joy. And he uses the idea of a woman in labor to help them understand what he means. Think about it. A woman has pain when her labor begins. She may be in terrible distress. Anyone who's had a child knows that. However, once she's given birth, the woman has such a deep joy at the birth of her child that all previous distress is forgotten. We know that that is true because if it were not the case, none of us would be here today. If our ancestors remembered the pain of childbirth, they would have stopped having children long ago. God has made it so that a woman forgets the pain because the outcome is worth it. In the same way, Jesus' death, though painful, will be the very thing that brings about their joy in the end, because it is through the death of Christ that real life in God's presence becomes possible. Jesus says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. You see, when they see Jesus raised from the dead, a lot of their questions that they had right then were going to be answered and they would know lasting joy. For then, once they're reconciled with God the Father through the sacrifice of Christ, they would be able to have a direct relationship with God and with the Holy Spirit who would indwell them. Because of Jesus' death, those who trust Jesus as their Savior are able to speak directly to the Father. We have a close, loving relationship with God the Father as between a father and his child, and all that is made possible by the death of Christ. The very thing that caused the disciples such pain would bring them to complete joy in knowing God as their heavenly father. In verse 25, Jesus speaks of this direct relationship that Christians have with the Father because of Christ. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. I know that this seems hard to understand at first, but Jesus is saying that there will be a time coming when things will be made clearer to them. And he says that there is a day coming when the disciples will be able to approach God the Father's throne directly 
on their own. You see, the death of Christ has opened up the way for us to boldly come into God's presence. We can approach his throne of grace with confidence, crying out to him, Abba, Father, knowing that he hears us. And Jesus says there in John 16, 27, that we can have this relationship because of the Father's love for us. And so why does he love us? It's because we love his son, Jesus. The fact that Jesus had, had addressed these unasked questions really ministered to the disciples. And yet, I think that it is partly by faith that the disciples say in verse 29, Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. God. Why did they believe? Because they hadn't asked him anything, and yet he knew exactly what they were thinking. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So again, Jesus, knowing that the hour is at hand, he warns them that when he is arrested, they will be scattered. He knows that they will abandon him, but the Father will be with him. And yet, in the midst of everything, Jesus wants them to have peace. And he tells them, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Those who follow Christ will have tribulation. And that Greek word is thlipsis. And it means oppression, affliction and distress. But in the midst of those hardships, we can take comfort in the fact that Christ has overcome. And he is victorious over it all. For as long as we are in Christ, connected to the vine that is Jesus, we too will be overcomers because of him. And now in chapter 17, Jesus begins his high priestly prayer. First, he prays for himself and then the disciples who were with him. And then finally, Jesus will pray for you and me, those who believe because of the disciples' message. Now, as we look at this, I want each of us to think about the way that we pray for ourselves. How much are we like Christ in what we pray for? Look at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. 
Jesus's desire, his main focus as he prays for himself, was that God the Father would be glorified in him. And that is so challenging to me. You know, we spend so much time praying for so many things for ourselves. But how often do we pray that God's name would be glorified in us and through us? Jesus was aware of the authority he had and that his purpose was to give eternal life to all who would put their trust in him. In verse 3, he clearly tells us what eternal life actually is. It's a deep relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ the Son. You see, the Greek word for know in the text there is genosko. And it doesn't mean an academic knowledge of God. Rather, it means to know him at the deepest, most intimate level. This is the same word that was used to describe the fact that Adam knew Eve. So it speaks of intimacy, of knowing each other's heart and of being completely at one with another. Eternal life is to have an intimate knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, the one whom he has sent. Jesus' work on earth was now drawing to a close, and so he looks forward to returning to the glory that he knew in heaven before. Remember how we saw in John 13 that Jesus had laid aside his garments at the Last Supper to serve the disciples by washing their feet? Well, in a sense, so too Jesus had once laid aside his robes of glory in order to come down here to earth. He took on the very nature of a servant and he lived among us, ultimately taking the punishment that should be ours. He died as our substitute to cleanse us spiritually. And now Jesus says that he is about to return to the Father to take up those robes of glory once again, those robes that he had before the world began. Jesus then goes on to pray for the disciples who were with him in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. In verse 6 there where Jesus says that he has revealed the Father to the disciples, the word in Greek for revealed really means to make visible or known through words or deed that which has previously been hidden or unknown. So Jesus made the invisible God known to the disciples through his words and deeds. And he went on, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus was not praying for the world here, those who did not accept him. Rather, he was 
praying for those who did believe and who followed him. And it's encouraging to me that even with all of the disciples' shortcomings, Jesus said in verse 10 that they had brought him glory. He prayed for them because although he's returning to the Father, the disciples were to remain in the world. And part of the success of their future work is going to depend on their unity. And so Jesus prayed that they might be one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. While Jesus was with them, he kept them safe. None were lost except Judas Iscariot, whom he calls the one doomed to destruction. And we already know that Judas never truly belonged to Jesus in the first place. It's very important to note that Judas is not an example of a believer who lost their salvation. No, rather Judas is an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation only to be shown for what he truly was in the end. Verse 13, Jesus goes on, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's interesting to me that knowing that the world will hate his followers, Jesus never prays to God the Father to take the disciples out of the world. Rather, he asks that they be protected from the evil one. We know that Satan will be defeated at the cross, and yet through Christ's own prayer, we see that Satan will still be active afterwards. For if he was not still active, why would Jesus pray for their protection from the evil one? Some people mistakenly think that Satan ceased to exist after he was defeated at the cross, and yet Jesus very clearly tells us otherwise. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus asks that the disciples be sanctified. In other words, that they be set apart for special use by God. And how is that done? Well, sanctification comes through the truth of God's word, according to what Jesus said. Jesus had set himself apart Heart for the work of God, and in like manner, the disciples were also being set apart as God's representatives on earth. Though they were no longer of the world, they were certainly called to be in the world as representatives of Christ. The truth of God's word is what transformed them, and it will transform us also, because as you and I study the word of God, it'll renew our minds, and it will change the way that we think and we live. Now, we have to leave it there for now, but we'll see in our next 
lesson that Jesus goes on to pray for all believers who would come after the disciples. In other words, he's going to go on to pray for you and for me. So don't forget to tune in next week because you won't want to miss what he asks for. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that even long before we ever came to faith in Christ, our Saviour had prayed for us. And Lord, I pray that you would draw us back again next week so that we can hear all that he has to say, all that was on his heart for us today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.